Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. My guest today is Jonathan Redding. Jonathan is the newest faculty member at Jacob Kruger Studio, and we are so incredibly lucky to have him. Jonathan was a writer on Homeland, which if you haven't watched, is an extraordinary show. And we're going to be talking about how Homeland was built and what was it like to be in that room, especially as your first staff gig. And, and, and how do you how do you build that? And, and, and what do you do when you show up there? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And, and John, Jonathan's background is actually as a playwright and a dramaturg. And so maybe we'll talk a little bit about the journey from playwriting to TV drama writing and, and how those things are related and connected. And so Jonathan, why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about your journey? I, I shall, but first just let me say thank you so much for having me on. And I am a fan of this podcast and I am, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be working with you. So this is, this is really fun for me. <laughs> well, thanks for being a part of it. Can you walk me through some of the greatest hits so I can do a little intro for you? So Homeland was when I got staffed. Yeah. That was my really end to the industry. I had been pursuing it for quite a while before that, but I had mainly been in the theater world mm -hmm. and I had been a playwright and a dramaturg and an actor. I had been the resident playwright to a theater in Santa Monica called the Broad Stage Regional Theater for a number of years. And while I was there, I got to work alongside some incredible artists like Mikhail Baryshnikov came, Shakespeare's Globe of London was a frequent guest, Anna Devere Smith came and workshopped some things with us. I was part of the early development process for Town. Uh, oh, wow. Mitchell still just had the concept album because Dale Franzen, who wound up being the executive producer of the Broadway run, was at the time our artistic director. Uh, so that was back when it was just first being workshopped with actors singing it live and trying to put together some simple kind of movements and things to it. Prior to that, I had my own company called the Los Angeles Theater Ensemble, who were kind of perennial ovation award nominees out here and had a number of celebrated and award-winning plays, including The War Cycle, which was a trilogy of plays we did about OEF, OIF, Iraq, and Afghanistan that sort of became timely again. But then it's, I, it's also just been writing for a long time. You know, it's yeah. just been a struggle for a long time. So specs and features. When I first came to town, I, I brought with me spec episodes of The Shield and Lost. They were in the middle of their runs. That is how... Long ago, I started this kind of march. Yes. So, so happens where it was like, Homeland was my first show. Like, it took so long. <laughs> yeah. So long to get to home. I can't tell you how long it took to get to Homeland. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually very heartening for students to understand that, yes, some people get lucky. And I always say, you never know when luck, luck could happen tomorrow, luck could happen in 10 years. But I think the people who are successful are often the people who the luck doesn't happen when they want it to necessarily, but they keep going through that and they keep pushing and they keep pushing and they put, keep pushing. And I think it's, it's very valuable to understand like it may take you a long time to build a career. And that's not because you're failing. That's because you're doing something really hard. Yeah. 
it's like Theseus's boat. Like you start out with your piece of material, you're like one or two scripts and you're like, this is the thing and it's going to get me there. And, and then by the time you've actually reached a destination or, or, or reached some far along part of your journey, every part of the boat underneath you has been replaced and patched over and become new. You are the constant. I love that as a concept, especially because there's so much bad advice out there. I get writers all the time and it's like, well, this person told me I should write this script. And then I write that script. And then somebody else said I should write something like this. And so I wrote that. And then somebody else said I should write something like this. And I wrote that. And it's really easy to go like, you should, you know, you, like as if somebody has all the magical answers. But yeah. like you said, really the common denominator is you and, and your voice, especially at the beginning. If you're trying to get staffed on a show, it's about people reading your work and going, wow, only Jonathan Redding can give me that, right? Yeah. That's, that's such a unique thing for him. That's the only reason to hire a new writer <laughs> is that they're giving you that. And, and how are you going to do that? You're going to do that by writing something that you're crazy about uh, yeah. and, and that you're desperate to create. How, how did you get staffed? Did they find you? Did you find them? Like, like what happened? What did that process look like? You know how everybody that you know that works has a crazy story of how they wound up working? Yeah. It really is true. So I had been in the theater world. I had made friends through my time in the theater with people that worked in the industry. Just because I, I had been at it, you know, I had been out here for years. I had been out here for 12 years at that point. And the first person that I sat down and asked out to coffee to just to say, I'm, I want to try and do this and, and can I pick your brain, was Dan Adias, who is an incredibly seasoned director of our drama television. He's directed every great show. And he was a, a repeat director for Homeland that they brought back every season. And it turned out that by that point, I also had a friend of my wife's, an old friend of my wife's, was an assistant, a post-production assistant on Homeland who knew the whole support staff. And another acquaintance that I knew a little bit through the Ohio Playwrights Conference world was Charlotte Stout, who had been a staff writer on Homeland and who has gone on to have this wonderful career. Charlotte's awesome. And she's, I believe, running the morning show right now. So I had this little smattering of people that were involved in Homeland or orbited Homeland. And I talked to them and nothing happened. Uh, and I went on pursuing other things. And then there were some openings on the support staff. And I came in an interview and I crushed the interview. It was so great. And I really liked everyone and everyone liked me. And they didn't hire me. What did it mean to crush the interview real quickly? Because I think a lot of people don't even know what that interview looks like or what somebody's looking for when you show up for that. For the, the assistant interview? Yeah. I don't know what it's supposed to be. I think for a lot of people, they're, they're, the sort of orthodox notion people have in their minds is that you're coming over from being in the mailroom at an agency, being on a lit desk, being on whatever else, and you're trying to get closer, or you're a set PA. You know what I mean? You're a production PA and you're involved in that aspect of it if you're trying to get closer to the orbit of the room. So that's one way that people can do it is that you can target those PA jobs that are in production or that are on a show peripheral to the room. And 
you don't go in there right away and do this, but over time you do an excellent job and you impress everybody and you're really kind, especially when it's really hard to be kind. That's like a clutch skill and you build goodwill and sooner or later people will ask you what it is you're trying to do. And you can let that be done. The way that I did it was I went into this interview from a completely other world and the message was kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm here to chop wood and carry water. You know, I want to do this, but I'm not really in a place where I'm going to get just hired straight across. I'm not like a no playwright. Mostly my dramaturgical work was in support of ensembles and playwrights. So I'm coming in with my work experience and I'm talking about all of the different sorts of things that I've done and the collaborative environments that I've been in and artists that I've worked with and for. But really a big part of it is just how do you click with the support staff that's already there? And I did things like research everybody because everybody that's on that support staff are also aspiring filmmakers and writers and artists. And so they have short films and they have histories and they have things that they did while they were in school. And they have things that they are trying to, they have a GoFundMe for, and they have something at Holly Shorts that you can go and see. You know, and, and you don't like, you don't want to stop these people, but you want to sit down and I wanted to have a sense of everybody's voice and their interests. And I genuinely really liked them because it was a great set of people. And so afterwards, when they didn't hire me, I reached out to each of them and said, hey, you know what? I know it didn't work out, but I really liked meeting you guys. And I don't know a lot of people. I don't have a ton of, of sort of friends and, and, and peers that are at this like, you know, breaking in you know, assistant kind of place because I'm new to this, this sphere because I'm moving over from another career path. And could I take you out to lunch? Could I take you out to coffee? Could we just talk about, can I pick your brain about what your, what your day-to-day job is like? like? What do you do on this desk? What do you do on this desk? And I made some really good friends and friends that are now we read each other's work and, you know, where we stay in touch and the seed of some of those friendships, you know, was there and it wasn't a mercenary thing. And that's an important and a fine distinction because you can feel when somebody's coming at you just with an agenda and you can feel that everybody wants to be making things and everybody wants to advance and it's very hard and it's very competitive and that can be a given and we all can understand that. But it, but if you're looking for friends and looking to be other-minded and interested in people, you know, beyond what they can do for you, you can kind of sense that as well. Um, so that, that has been the energy I've tried to bring to everything and to think of building friendships instead of networking. I think that's such an amazing point. And it also takes a lot of the pressure off, you know, like it really does. It's so easy to think like you're supposed to wow everyone you talk to. And the truth is like some people are not your people yeah. and, and you're not for everybody either, you know, nor should you be. And like, if you were internet dating, you'd know that. But like, sometimes when we get out into like the networking world, we don't know that. And it can lead to feelings of failure, but it can also lead you to acting crazy, right? Because you're just trying so hard as opposed to being like, are you my people? (laughs) And it's just worth emphasizing, like, 
so many writers would have taken the rejection as they don't like me. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, but it has nothing to do with that. Yes. You know, exactly. you come away from it going like, uh, no, I know they liked me. We liked each other. We, there was a spot there. That was a really fun conversation. That's how I, that's what crushing the interview meant. Yes. I had all my facts in order. I was able to answer every question and talk about myself. I was able to do it honestly. I was able to do it from a place of relaxation, but I didn't go in there to perform. Yes. You know, you can move a little bit into your extrovert function. Yeah. Right. Like our society is, is obsessed, like Twitter's obsessed with introverts and extroverts and, and, and Buddha, but every, it really, that's a spectrum and we all have both extremes. Yes. We vacillate between them. And some of us maybe are more frequently in one half than the other, but so you can, you bring your energy up and you present like you're going into a job interview, but make it about other people. Yeah. Make the conversation about other people and be curious about other people. And don't ever think that the thing you're really talking about is the job right in front of you. That's not what you're talking about because most of the time you're not going to get whatever the thing is that's right in front of you. Yeah. But the people, you know, can travel with you. If you like each other, that's for free. Yeah. You know, nobody has to worry about anything else. And dividends arise from that and careers arise from that, not from really needing to crush this moment. Yes. I really love that. I, I always think a no is just an opportunity to find a mentor. Yeah. And, <laughs> and everybody likes being a mentor. Being a mentor is awesome. You know, not everyone, everyone, good everyone at it. was helped. <laughs> yeah. Everyone that works was helped. And yeah. I didn't understand this in the beginning. I didn't understand that you could just go up to people and ask for a little bit of their time, ask to have a cup of coffee, ask to have a conversation with them. And there will be some people that are too busy that say no, that ghost you. And you let that go and you forgive that because everybody's life is crazy. And you let people know that there are no worries, but you swing back every two months. If somebody says yes, and they're not ghosting, but they keep punting, they keep kicking the can down the road, you put it in your calendar and a couple of months later, you come back and you say, hey, you don't want to be a bother. Just want to put a bug in your ear. If you're still up for this, we'd love to sit down and chat. And if not, totally get it. And I hope your summer's well. I hope you're doing well. And I'll talk to you later. And there's a, a friend of mine, a, a mentor of mine referred to that as elegant persistence. Those networking skills, those soft skills, you know. Yeah. We're writers. And a lot of us think like it all takes place, you know, between you and your keyboard. But, yeah. but it especially, well, on the business side, it can't, but especially in the TV world, you know, okay. when they're, when they're interviewing somebody, they're also going like, is this person going to be valuable in the room? Oh, yeah. a thousand percent more important than your sample. Yeah. Is whether they think they can use you interpersonally and that they like, like there's, there's. There are plenty of good enough samples and who you are and what their estimation of working with you round the clock for however many months is. Yeah. That's got to take you the rest of the way. Yeah. Because if there's somebody where they go, you'll be really, I really like this person, funny, great references. They've been vouched for by this person and this person. And I just know we're going to have a good experience. 
I just feel really good about the experience I'll have with this person. And they've pitched some useful things and the sample is not bad. Yeah. Because you're literally locked in a room with these people. You're, you're literally banging your head against an episode with these yeah. people. And yeah. you, want, you want them to be people you enjoy working with. Yeah. Which is not to say like, you know, sandbag your sample. Like, yeah, no, your sample should be awesome. Possibly be. Yeah. But if you come in there with something brilliant, but you're prickly and they think this person's going to be difficult down the stretch, this is not a person I want to be in the foxhole with when yeah. we're two episodes behind and $4 million over budget and I've got a star in open mutiny and like yeah. they don't, they want to know that you're, that you're, a good person, a team player, a source of positive energy. Yeah, I learned this in a crazy way. I started as a producer and we were doing this project and we had to get a British writer because of financing. And so I was the person who was in charge of reading like thousands of British writers and you know trying to find the right person. And I, I bust into my, my boss's office and I won't say the person's name, but I was like, you are never gonna get it. Guess who I just got? Multiple Academy Awards, you know, he has written some of my, favorite screenplays, like just absolutely brilliant. And he wants to do it. I'm yes. And I'm expecting like a hug and maybe fireworks or something. And my boss goes, Oh, no. Oh, no. That that's like inviting a bear into the room. And, and I'm like, but he's like the best bear in the world, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and my boss was like, absolutely not will completely lose control of, of the project. And that was such an incredible lesson, actually for me as a writer, because I was much more interested always in writing than producing, but it's such an interesting lesson as a writer that it's, it's not, you could not have found a better writer for this project, but it's about, I'm gonna be working with this person for a year in a series for many years. And like, are my ideas gonna be honored? You know, are, are my needs going to be cared about? You know, is, is, is it, it going to be a two-way street or a one-way street? Fortunately, it, it seems that the tide is moving in the direction of the real jerks kind of being pushed out and it becoming unacceptable. Yeah. You know, to be nasty in the room. That's a, a part of this inclusivity and justice movement is to say, like, there are kinds of behavior that are not going to be tolerated. Yeah. But the flip side of that is that now it is an expectation that you be a good gal or dude. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So there, which is which is good because it was it was not yeah, it was not that way in my time, I can tell you. Yeah. There's really not a level of talent in my estimation that is so special that you deserve to just be nasty to people. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to be a novelist who's a misanthrope. <laughs> And who lives in your isolated bubble and goes for long walks in the woods, you know, and shouts at pigeons, like, fine, go do that. But if you're going to work in this super collaborative medium, like, you're not that special. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it, it really does make sense, right? It wasn't that way when I was coming up, but it does make sense uh, that you're working on a group project and you're going to get better results if you've got a great group than if you've got one gifted jerk. But, but we'll bring this all back. Okay, so you build, you build these mentorship, friendship relationships out of what could have been felt like disaster. 
What happens next? So I, I have a couple of friendships that are circling around Homeland. Nothing happens. There are openings on the support staff. I'm not hired. I continue making friends to some of these people that I'm still friends with. And then something happens where somebody's getting married uh, and one of the more senior assistants. And so they're going to be short staffed during a crucial week. And they need somebody that can come in and be the writer's PA so that the writer's PA can bump up and do a more complicated job that she's more than capable of doing. But somebody needs to take her duties off of her shoulders for a week. Yeah. And it's, it's simple stuff. But again, it's that interpersonal thing because they're in the middle of their flow. So they're into, into scripts and into episodes and it's starting to get intense and it's starting to quicken and they're understaffed a little bit. The room is understaffed and they don't want to just bring in any old body. So they go, oh, we really like Jonathan. That was so great. Let's see if he can do it for a week, if he can cover us for a week as a temporary employee. And so, of course, I shelve everything else that I have happened in my life. And I say, I'm sorry, I have to go do this for a week. It's crucially important. I will be back. And I had like a side gig at that point. And I go and I go crazy above and beyond that week. So if I'm given a task you know, I think about the two extra peripheral things around that task that I could do. Like, okay, we want you to stock the kitchen. Well, okay, so I'm going to stock the kitchen for the week. And I'm also going to go through and reorganize and throw out all the expired yogurts. And I am going to empty and clean the fridge. And I am going to do a deep scrub of, of the uh, tabletop with all of the coffee apparatus and the espresso machine. And I'm going to take the espresso machine apart and clean its component parts and I'm going to go to where they keep all of their, you know, their note cards and their pens and their clipboards and all of their office supplies that by this point in the season are completely higgledy-piggledy and interspersed. And I'm going to like straighten them and organize them and make everything look nice. And I'm going to, you know, adjust the times on all the clocks and make sure that the pictures are hanging straight. And like everything I could possibly think to do that did not overstep my beliefs. Yeah, I did. And at the end of that week, they said, oh, my God, thank you. And I said, oh, yeah, of course, it's my pleasure. And, you know, I'm, I want to come work here. So, yeah, I did the best I possibly could. But have a great have a great rest of the season. This was a pleasure. And I'm really glad you guys thought of me. And I left. And nothing happened for a little while. And then I got a phone call to say that the writer's assistant, the room assistant, was leaving the show for personal reasons and they wanted to know if I could come in and be the writer's PA permanent and this is entirely because I'd already done it I had been in the room to take lunch orders that's one of the things you do as the writer's PA so all of the writers had met me and it was a no-brainer for them to say oh yeah that guy just he was fine bring that guy yeah uh, we don't have two brain cells to give to this problem so just that that's a face I've seen before yeah. And I got that job. And then a little bit after that, the woman who had been the writer's PA who had bumped up, unfortunately also had to leave the show for a health issue. And now there's a writer's assistant open. So like, boom, boom, boom. 
And I had come in as a PA and immediately let it be known that I was a great researcher and that that was a big part of dramaturgical work. And could I pick up any like research slack for them? So I would take home research assignments and do them and bring them in the next day when I came to open up the office. And it was just that it was just, it, it was just hurling myself at everything I possibly could with every waking moment and being the person to jump on the grenade and being the person to volunteer. And that got me to be the writer's assistant and to get into the room behind the keyboard, taking the notes. And then somebody needs to read this stack of books. The thing that got me staffed. And as I'm doing this, I'm also writing my own material and entering and winning some of the screenwriting competitions, which is a really dubious way to go about it. And a lot of them are scams, but some of them like slam dance, where I had a really good experience. Some of them are reputable and some of them are good. Yes. Some of them have great follow through with, with people that do well. Um, and if you have the resources and are, are willing to put in a little bit of research and think about which ones might be worth applying to and which not, like. It's a, it's a route. It's a way to try it. It did help. me. Yeah. I actually have a podcast about that. If you're listening and you want to look through the archives about how to identify which festivals and contests are, are real and which ones are scams. So, so you're winning some contests. Yeah. So they're amazing at ordering, at ordering lunch. And now I'm in here and I'm doing the room notes and Alex Gonza comes to me with a stack of books this high about 40 years of conflict history in Afghanistan. And he says, man, I'm so sorry. Somebody needs to read these books and I don't have time. And somebody needs to synthesize this information because we're going to be, I think, maybe working with the author of two of these huge tomes, a guy named Steve Cole, who's a brilliant journalist, brilliant conflict journalist, geopolitical journalist. And he just was like, we need things. We need timelines. We need like a reader's digest of this. We need reference materials that are, that are concise because everything is so sprawling and we can't just do Wikipedia and articles are so siloed. Like we need something more global. And I said, I'll have it back to you in two weeks. And I barely slept. And I did my job at every quiet moment and on every lunch break. And as soon as I got home at night, I was speed reading and making notes and writing marginalia. And I wound up creating this whole body of, of research of all of those things, a, a digest of 40 years of Afghan conflict history. And they got it. And he looked at it and he was like, this is incredible. And... I, to be honest, I don't even really have time to keep referring back to this. So what we're, what we're going to do is I just want you in the conversation. So I just want you pitching and I want you to remind us of things. And I just want you there so that I can ask you things in the room uh, because it's, it's completely wasted to have you know this and then not that you're just going to be the thing now is what happened. Like you're the encyclopedia. Yeah. And that's how I got really invited into the process and entrusted with the process. And then they started using my pitches and there came a booth. The last season, this was the last season was crazy. And they tried to hire, there, there, there were several writers that they explored adding to that room that fell through for various reasons. And there came a point when 
they looked around and they're short staffed and I'm there and they've been using my pitches and they just gave, they were, they like knighted me. They we're like, okay, you're a writer now, go to set. Yeah. We, we, need, we need help. We just need more personnel. Yeah. And that's how I got to be a staff writer was this, it, but it, it depended on all of these things that were completely unforeseeable and that from the outside looked impossible. And yeah. it really kind of taught me like every hard thing seems impossible until it happens. And then you're like, wow, I can't believe those things all happened in a row for me to get that job. Yeah. But now I have it and now I have the credit and now a whole other universe of things become possible. Yeah. You know, sprawling out from that credit. Well, but just so much of life is just doing a great job, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. hard. You was, can't, none of that was within my control. Yes. You know, you can't the, intellectually the draw the line from cleaning the espresso maker to writing for Homeland. Yeah. Right. And I think what happens to a lot of people is they get that, that, that stocking the kitchen job, but they come at it with resentment. Yeah. Because this isn't what I want to be doing. But it's true. People depend on people who do great work. Yeah. And I guess that's super common, like surly support staff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is mind numbing to me. You know, like you're there, like this is the show. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're, you know, swabbing out the bathroom or whatever, but this is, this is the show. This is the thing that you've, you've dreamed about being a part of and you don't take pride in the execution of menial jobs and you're not willing to bring a hundred percent effort to something that is, that is kind of mindless and that doesn't demand enough or demand very much of you. Why should they think that you'll have the grit to dig in and perform at a high level, doing something very demanding on short notice with crazy variables being thrown at you? If they don't think you will work your guts out at anything that you're given, you know, why will they put their faith in you when everything is so high stakes? Yeah. You know, multi-million dollar episode budgets, the people that are running the show or they're worried about getting another season and they're worried about, you know, about the renewal. They're worried about having to sit down with the studio and the network and they got to, we got to go back to this location because we've realized that it's important for the finale, but we're going to have to go and ask for a couple of million extra dollars and we're already over budget and they don't want to do it. And my line producer is about to go rock me in my sleep. And I have, I've got, I've got problems. Yeah. I need to know that you are a no problems kind of guy. Yeah. I want you to talk a little, I wasn't planning to discuss this with you, but I would love to get for you to talk about research because sure. for a lot of writers, research is like a rabbit hole that they get lost in and where their research ends up becoming the project and where their research can kind of gum up the, the creativity and the characters and the, the simplicity of the piece. And at the same time, you're writing a piece like Homeland. And obviously there's a lot of research that needs to go into that because there's a complicated world and there's geopolitics and right. How do you balance that as a writer? Okay. In a moment, I want to tell a cool story about how that works on Homeland. Yeah. Because it's like such a sterling example. That is tricky. That is a skill. It varies from project to project. 
for me, I actually learned something on Homeland that was really useful because early on for me, there was a paralytic element to my concern over truthfulness and believability. And I think a thing that, that early career writers can fall into a lot is trying to anticipate any question or bump that any audience member might possibly have and to put an explainer for that, like any logic question you can think of about how this would not work in the real world or whatever, you're trying to come up with a way to explain and insert it into your script. Yeah. Your scripts, early scripts can become this kind of elaborate blocking exercise, like in the football sense. Yes. You know, there was a, a liberty for me in being on Homeland, and it's such a high verisimilitude series, right? Yeah. Um, to a degree, like the texture of the world, the kinds of things that, that, that we're dealing with and that we're talking about, the way the technology works, the way the government organizations work, the way that the diplomatic corps works, and the, you know, the, the NATSEC world. Is, is all trying to have a level of truthfulness that allows the audience to believe in the heft of the world mm-hmm. so that when you ask them to take the TV leap, they are able to do so and still believe in the world as mm-hmm. a solid thing. And that's a, that's, a, that's a tonal thing because you watch something like a uh, broadcast, like a network, Criminal Minds, you know, one of these procedurals and you're like, well, this is a TV world, you know, like these serial kids, this, this Machiavellian super genius doesn't exist. There's not people like that. And, you know, that's not really, we're moving so fast and everything's so glossy and we're not stopping to think about small problems, procedural problems, things that, that they have to deal with that are human and minute and it moves like an action movie or whatever it is. Yeah. Right. You can feel that lighter arcade physics kind of tone. There was a moment on Homeland, and I would get really hung up on this because I had done so much research and I knew all of these things. Yeah. And there was a moment where I was like, you know, this, this just wouldn't happen this way. This meeting just wouldn't happen this way. It pulls me entirely out of it. And I was very gently told, very gently reminded, like, yes, that might be true, but one, Nobody knows how this works. Like three people at Foggy Bottom know how this would really happen. And two, this is a work of fiction. And I would hear that echo. That was like a phrase of Chip Johannesson's, who was a, a, a brilliant writer who was on a million things and ran Dexter at one point and is just like acerbic and funny and dry and like scary smart. But we'd be talking with, uh, they'd be shouting back and forth about some piece of research data that they had gotten from a consultant, because it was a show with a great consultant base. Like, oh, we're talking to this, you know, Night Stalker pilot, like elite special forces pilot, saying this wouldn't work like this, this wouldn't work like this. And Chip would just call back from the room, will you remind him that this is a work of fiction? And there is that dividing line. And it's something that you have to feel your way into and figure out for yourself based on trial and error in your various drafts and revisions, where that feels right for the project that you're working on now, based on how realistic that project has to be. 
if you are writing a show that is about vampires, you can choose to read Bram Stoker or not, or Anne Rice or not, or examine folklore about all of the different kinds of, you know, the jumping vampires of Asia, you know, all the different kinds of ideas of what vampires have been. Or you can read nothing and make it up entirely from scratch because vampires don't exist. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it's, a, it's a case by case thing, but I, I figured out at the end of the day that you have to liberate yourself from the notion that you are presenting the real world. Mm-hmm. If you're doing cinema verite, if you're, if you're really trying to show people something that is grounded exactly in our world, like Mayor of Easttown mm-hmm. felt like this is just the world. Yeah. You know, there's no stylistic imposition on top of this at all. Mm-hmm. This is how small town police really are. This is how this corner of America really is. It, it just feels like the world. You're doing that, then maybe, you know, you want to be very specific in, in your research of that region and try and hew to it because you're trying to make the audience feel that. Like they're just watching a real community. Yeah, yeah I love this answer. You know, you had said something earlier about anticipating needs. And you were talking about it in relation to, you know, I'm the PA, right? But it's so much like mentorship, right? It, it is your, you know, when, when you're mentoring a writer, it, it's, or when you're working on a show, you're a staff writer on a show, right? It, not every show, not every writer has the same needs. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I had a similar lesson because, you know, I was a research maniac, you know, and I, I wanted everything to be true. But the truth is, that's not possible. Even Mayor of Easttown is heightened, right? Yeah. Because the true world unfolds over, you know, homeland unfolds over 20 years, right? Like you, you can't capture in an episode the way life unfolds in real time. And so somebody said to me, and he said it in a different way, because I would have bristled, because I was such a little egomaniac, but I would have bristled at, you know, this is the work of fiction. I, I didn't know what work of historical fiction. But uh, somebody said it to me in a way that, that actually helped me so much. And they said, you have to navigate towards the fun. Hmm. Um, that was so helpful to me because I realized, yes, the fun is different in every show. You know, in, in BoJack Horseman, the fun is a million puns and, you know, industry jokes and then like moments that make you want to cry that come out of nowhere, right? And in succession, you know, the fun is watching these people who have everything, who are just in so much pain, right? And who are just causing so much pain for themselves, for each other, and for everyone around them, right? And the fun is watching them hurt each other, you know? And, and in a way, Arrested Development is the same thing with a lighter tone, yeah. you know? And so, and, and, you know, as you were describing it, you know, uh, you're much more of an expert in Homeland, obviously, than I am, but you know, if you didn't have a believable world in Homeland, if you didn't have all that research, if you didn't have the consultants, if you didn't have those books, right, 
then Homeland is, is not going to be fun because it's going to feel fake. And yep. the whole piece is such a commentary on, I mean, it, it, it feels even more valid now, right? As we look back at it, right? How, how prescient so much yeah. of that show was. That was achieved in an interesting way, but yeah. Yeah, let's circle back to that because I want to, but the fun is, it's got to feel like our real world, but the fun is really, Harry is always going to fall in love with the wrong person, <laughs> right? And like the fun is actually Carrie's relationships, right? And Carrie's mental illness, right? And Carrie's sacrificing everything that she really wants for a country that doesn't appreciate her. Yeah. And, well, and that's yeah. and that's so much the franchise, and it's been uh, oft remarked, but the 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 Cassandra archetype that yeah. Harry is a character who is doomed to know the truth, but to be disbelieved. Yes, and we're watching her compulsively, repetitively dig holes for herself that is going to make it so much harder for her to make her truth understood. Yes. You know, because she's hopping into bed literally and figuratively with dangerous people and liars and spies. And, you know, she's so mission focused that she undermines herself as a narrator. Yes. Yes. And we talk about engine all the time. Right. And there are there are obviously so many elements of engine. I'm sure having written, worked on the show, you could, you could, you know, make a 5,000 page Bible to capture all the ingredients of what makes Homeland Homeland. Right. But, but hey, falling in love with the wrong people is a, is a really succinct way to capture something so essential to the heart. Exactly. Exactly. That you, you, when you're building your engine, you actually, it needs to be that simple for you. Right. Otherwise yeah. your piece is going to feel diffuse. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the aliveness? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Where's the aliveness? What makes it personal aliveness and, and what's dangerous and what do you sit down and go like, Ooh, I don't know where that goes. Yeah. I find I've, I've been kicking something around for a year that's in development that has some, you know, mass around it and, and just really had that epiphany recently where I'm sitting there going, I know where all of this goes. Yeah. And that, and that makes it a dead thing. For me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that idea was in Hamlet. Words. By the time a word reaches our lips, it's dead. <laughs> and I had a, a, a thought that turned it on its head. And I went, I have no idea where that goes. Yes. I need to follow that. And yeah. I still don't. You know, but I've got the, the, the bones of a pilot, but we're going to see, you know, where that sort of leads. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, obviously outlining is very important when you're working on a series because you've got a, a team that's got to be able to work together, right? So at the same time, so many writers get confused about how outlines are supposed to work, right? That, you know, the idea that the outline is supposed to tie everything up with a bow. Yeah. Right? And I think that leads to exactly what you're talking about, which is dead writing. And I always look at it like my actual job is to paint myself into a corner that I don't know how to get out of. Because if I don't know how to get out of it, then certainly the character doesn't know how to get out of it. 
And then certainly the audience can't predict how they're going to get out of it. Uh, and then I got to figure out what does out of it look like, right? And, and that doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be a spy thriller to, yeah. to do that. It can be a drama, you know, it remains the day, you know, like, like how is he ever going to tell her that he loves her, <laughs> right? Like there, there are, but allowing yourself to get messy, right? And allowing yourself to get scared and how that kind of elevates writing to like a spiritual place where you're actually going on a journey as opposed to being you, the puppet master. Yeah. Moving the pieces around. Yeah. And, and instead of thinking schematically. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we think schematically, we almost can't help but be derivative. Yes. And this is such an exciting time to be a writer and to be an emerging writer where so many orthodoxies and, and sort of rigid thought patterns of what you can and can't do are crumbling. And for all of the sort of business side difficulties that have emerged from the streamer model, the creative potential is wild. And to think of something like, God, I was just on another call talking about this, Ted Lasso, which I know you've talked about. Yeah, yeah. Like you build this whole season around this Machiavellian, around the plot of Major League. Yeah. And then when you get to the moment where it all comes out in the open, he just forgives her. Yeah. He just forgives her. It just ends. It just diffuses because that's what the show's about. The yeah. show's about this unerringly, unflinchingly kind man dropped into this poison world and how the world changes around him and how whether or not they're winning soccer games, like it matters ish. Yes. You know, it has some consequences for the team, but that's it. But it doesn't really matter to the meat of the show and the meat of the characters. That is radical. When I saw that, my, my wife and I were watching it and I was agape, like my jaw was on the floor. So do you understand what happened? Like, that's not how that's supposed to work. Yes. That's not how that's supposed to work. He's supposed to blow up at her and there's a huge falling out. And then that's the leave and the cliffhanger that's going to platform you into season two is that now we have this major problem and this rift between these two characters. And they just were like, no. Nah, I forgive you. It's hard. Yes. It's hard. Yeah. Now, yeah. I was thinking when we, when we were talking about like research before. I was thinking about the offer. This is going to be one of my upcoming podcasts, and I'm teaching a master class on the offer. And you know, so much of the offer isn't true, right? I've not seen the offer. Oh, you're missing. So, yeah. I, I, yeah. Well, I have a small child, so I'm falling behind. Without ruining it for you, Jonathan, they're they're building a mafia story around the story of the making of the Godfather. Right. And the, right. Yeah, yeah. the mafia story, the, oh, the, I didn't realize that the That's... mafia characters are echoing lines from the Godfather and scenarios from the Godfather, but they're like gentle riffs. Right. And a lot of it, you know, some of the people who were involved in The Godfather were like, oh, that's actually not what happened. Actually, Coppola didn't like that guy, you know, like, but as a, but as a piece, right, it is built out of the real stories of the making of The Godfather. Yeah. Right. But as a concept, right, the whole thing just, the last episode isn't perfect, but the, the whole thing is just like such a, a, a joy ride. And, and again, it's, 
it's completely wild, right? It, it is it is a completely wild choice that grows out of what's true, right? Cool. You know, that's, I love that that play within a play art imitates life frame. Yes, and so we live at this incredible time, right? Like, I mean, when I was coming up, TV was where you went to die, you know, and we're living in this incredible time where, where you can take risks and where studios and streaming services are making money, taking risks in this space. And it's incredibly empowering. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about working with writers. You're going to be teaching ProTrack for us, which is our mentorship program where, you know, we'll pay your pair you one-on-one with Jonathan and he'll read every page you write and work with you through your script and through every draft you write and mentor you for your whole career if you want. And, you know, we're also hopefully in the winter going to be offering a writing room class with you where it's run like a real writer's room and you're the showrunner and we have eight students in the room who are each working on their own project as part of a group. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit philosophically about like, how do you think about teaching? How do you think about working on scripts by new writers? Mm. So there are two things for me, and I would imagine there are more things for you who are, for those that, that may not know, Jake is an incredible teacher. There are teaching givens and orthodoxies because there are there are fundamentals that we need to understand we need to understand about the field and we need to be able to apply to our own work and i like to use the word orthodoxies because once you get to a higher level of skill and of familiarity in your toolkit there there you realize that most things aren't rules that exceptions will pop up for things and that it can eventually become limiting to say to yourself, well, now there has to be this big blow up because she's confessed to Ted that she's been trying to ruin the team. Yeah. There was somebody who said, no, I'm going to buck that. And they made magic out of it. That's not a great place to start with young writers because you need to really understand fundamentals of drama first. So there's that toolkit that's kind of constant. That's what are these elements of scene? How do we arrive at structure? You know, how does structure arise out of character? But then there's also the piece of it that's very individualized and that's very idiosyncratic and that's really kind of writer-led. And you, I think that it's crucial to be able to hear and discern the excitement and the zest and where the love is and where the fun is navigate toward the fun that younger writers and emerging writers are going to help you understand in a, in a million different ways where they want to go and what about this brings them alive. And the project, the, the challenges to a specific page, to a specific script, to a specific project are, are always going to be opportunities to keep returning to those fundamentals. But it's a deeply personal and I believe spiritual thing 
to try to help someone find their uniqueness in their voice. I know you talk about this a lot. I really do believe that what we do is Promethean. Like we are, we're fire thieves. You know, they've gone up there and they've got a hold of something that's alive and that's hot and it's dangerous. And even if it's a sweet story about an animated dog that's the best friend of a sick child, there's something that is in that writer for whom this is deeply personal and resonant. And your job, in a sense, is to help them get down off the mountain without that fire going out. Yeah. That's the way that I like to think of it. And it's hard to break that down into process because it's the fire's different every time and the writer's different every time and the descent is different every time. Yeah. The goal is the same. The goal is to steal the fire and bring it to the people who need it. Beautiful. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. This is a fantastic podcast. We are so fortunate to have you on our faculty. If you'd like to study with Jonathan, you can go to writeyourscreenplay.com slash ProTrack, or you can click the link in the bio. And Jonathan, is there any, if there's one piece of advice that you would want to leave writers with, what, what would that piece be? It would be surrender. Surrender to the process and surrender to the fact that this is a life and a way of life. and that there are, we get so obsessed with a specific result and we don't control the results. Yeah. And we can, we can really hurt our effort to be successful and to get our stories out there and share them with people if we are not able to surrender to the process of the living and surrender to chance and circumstance and let the results take care of themselves. Life that's the universe's problem. You know, if your dream is to win an Oscar, that's a dream. That's not a goal. You can't make that happen. Yeah. But you can show up every day with an open heart at your keyboard. And any and all success emerges from that. It's not the other way around. That is really beautiful, Jonathan. What a, what a wonderful place for us to end. So thank you. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast and for coming aboard at the studio. I'm very excited. Awesome.